Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. Uh, you can go to focuscompounding.com uh, to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff for free, going all the way back to 2005. Uh, huge archive there, Jeff. Huge archive there. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about a book that I recently read. Uh, I imagine you've read it before because you recommended it to me. Uh, and the book is called The New Financial Capitalist. And you could buy it uh, used. Jeff and I, before the show, were saying, well, have you ever looked at you know what the used... Uh, books or prices actually look like, but this is marketing it as used for $3.16. If you click it on Amazon, you could find a bunch of books. Uh, looks like in the $7 area, $3.20 says used acceptable. What's the difference between used good and used acceptable? Like how bad does acceptable have to be? <laughs> like, oh, I can so still read it, <laughs> but it's, it's not you know, what is There's that? a description underneath it that tells you what the rules are for that. It's quite bad. So um, the advantage is that with some of these, if you look for really good sellers of stuff, and especially if it's really um, like books that are not very popular and stuff, um, yeah. sometimes they just to protect themselves so that you give them a good review and everything will mark it down as like acceptable when there's almost nothing wrong with it. I've gotten okay. ones that are acceptable from good sellers that have light pencil markings in them and nothing else. You'll get other ones from some sellers that are in terrible shape, like there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, awful. So it says what the rules are underneath it, right? Like most of them, it says, you know, somewhere, markings, whatever, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Mostly I'd worry more about the quality of the seller than the description of the quality of it. You're not collecting these books to sell them and stuff, so who cares what it looks like? Um, I mark mine up, so it ruins the copy for other people. Um so I just depends who's like buying though. Depends who's <laughs> buying it, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have some that have been signed and stuff because I bought them used or whatever, you know? And like, uh -huh. so yeah, there, there's some weird things on the front of it because, yeah. you know, they were given by one person to another and stuff. So yeah, I uh, buy used books all the time and I, I do think it's kind of fun to open it up and see like, uh, you know, notes on it and what they underlined and, and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I hate that about the Kindle thing. If you don't turn that off where it tells you like yeah. a thousand people highlighted this thing, you know, and it's usually some like self-help app, you know, like um, <laughs> some sort of trite thing or something usually sure. that they highlighted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm reading, I'm like, Oh, I guess I should probably highlight this too. <laughs> Let me highlight it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so why did you recommend this book to me? I thought it was a, oh. a wonderful book. Um, and it really, you know, it brings home this idea of like, you know, capital allocation, but also though, like deal structure. And then after mm -hmm. the, the deals happen, how to, um, you know, run that organization, be incredibly focused on expense control. I mean, something with LBOs, especially in this book that they were talking about is sometimes they would put down, I mean, if no equity, like, I mean, basically nothing, right? So yeah. they were so focused on expense control because if they got that part wrong, uh, then they would not survive, you know? So why did you recommend this book? Why do you think this is a book that more people should read? I mean, 
me personally, I think every board should read this book. I think every investor should read this book. I think every operator should read this book. And I don't know if I've ever said that about any books that we've talked about on this podcast, all three of those uh, categories of people. I think it's a great book that people should read. It's not mainstream. Uh, so why did you recommend it? Why do you think it's a good book for people to read? And yeah, just tell me your thoughts on uh, The New Financial Capitalist and what it's about, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an amazing book. One of the best I've ever read. I think it's very biased. Um, and I think most people wouldn't like it. But I do think that it it's great. Um, so the book is The New Financial Capitalist, Colbert, Kravis, Roberts, and the Creation of Corporate Value. What Do you have the original publication date? Because it's quite an old book. Um, Let's see. What do they have down in the far on the right side there for publication date? That would be the first edition, I think. So if you scroll up, so this first edition, it. October nineteen ninety eight. Okay. Um. So you know, we're talking about a book that covers a period in the eighties and stuff, and um, would be over twenty five years old. That it you know hasn't been reprinted and stuff. Um. I believe it has been reprinted. I don't remember if it's ever been reprinted. Uh. So. It's a great book, but it benefits from a lot of close reading of reading it and interpreting what they're saying and marking it up. And so sometimes I get a lot out of books that I feel I wouldn't recommend to other people. Like we had talked about doing a podcast on um, Going Infinite, the Michael yeah. Lewis book yeah. on FTX, because I just thought that was one of the best business books that I'd ever read. Um, I would give that to people instead of like doing a podcast about, oh, how do you see the red flags of a fraud and what's it like and what do people doing that think and everything. You just give them that book and it's, you know, seeing that and having them mark it up for themselves of being like, what does all this mean and everything will teach you more about frauds and things than you could get from reading a hundred books on short selling or accounting things or whatever. And it's similar here where they talk about corporate value leverage shareholder value you know all that kind of stuff of how do you financial engineering basically is what this book is about and mm -hmm. it's better than any textbook on financial engineering um you know it, it really is terrific but mm -hmm. um but you know not for the mainstream audience i don't even think for a mainstream value investing audience i think it's not gonna be a lot of fun um, but you know, I, I would take it apart and stuff. It'd be great to teach a class or something, just taking the case studies from this and working through it the whole time or something that that's the way to do it. This book mm -hmm. teaches you more about financial engineering than any book I've ever read on the topic. Was there a particular case study that stood out to you that you think people should, you know, dive into? I mean, take us through one from the book. Oh, there's a lot. There's a yeah. lot of, especially mm -hmm. like, so, you know, they have a lot of success and everything, but I do want to point out there's some failures. And yeah. they're very instructive. And, and and I disagree with the authors on some of them. So there, there's a few where I said this, I think in some other podcasts, where it was like, you know, KKR could have seen ahead of time what the problems were. And there's reasons why they didn't detect it and deal with it because of um, blind spots in how they were thinking. So they're thinking in terms of EBITDA and stuff instead of cash flow things. They don't seem to have understood float and the balance sheet stuff in terms of current assets and current liabilities to the extent that they probably should have. Um, and so that was an issue with some businesses. They had two of them in particular. Um, and so I think they learned from that, although others have had success with fast growing companies and stuff, but they didn't, you know, that's a thing where EBITDA is different from other things. And, um, you know, it was many years ago and people didn't have the same understanding of cash flows and stuff that they do today. Um, and then of course, there's the famous case of, um, the, uh, 
you know, bar covered in uh, barbarians at the gate and all that. So that's obviously a bigger story that goes beyond here. But that was, although not a money loser for them, it was a huge deal that really weighed down their results. There's like a appendix thing that breaks down their annualized returns and everything, internal rates of return on stuff. And it shows you how much certain funds were pulled down or up by certain results. You can see there that um, they, they had a huge portfolio waiting to something that didn't do very well. Um, so actually some of their biggest deals weren't amazing, but some did well, you know, but some of the highest profile ones weren't amazing. Um, so it, all that stuff was very interesting. Um, and this one, there's been other books on KKR doesn't have too much about the personal stuff in it. You know, it has a little bit, it is, like I said, kind of biased. Look, this is a basically an official book. So you have access to the archives and stuff in exchange for, I'm sure the authors would say, there's no exchange, but in exchange for, you know, you don't air people's dirty laundry and stuff and make it a sensational book about that kind of stuff. And I think in their introduction, they say that that's not the kind of book they wanted to write, but it, they wouldn't even be allowed to write that book if they had wanted to. So, you know, um, so people are always going to have doubts with something where it's that official that way, sort of like the snowball. You know, there's so much cooperation on it that people are going to say, OK, well, is it is it too authorized? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from the title, uh, The Creation of Corporate Value, how did they redefine this term, corporate value, or the concept of corporate value? Well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know that KKR did. I think all that KKR did is they institutionalized it as a repetitive process that you would do as an organization that lasts longer than some individuals. Um, but I don't believe that they actually originated anything. I think that if you look 20 years before, there were individuals who were doing this. Um, uh, there are famous cases of people who did it. Um, and they, the founders of the company had worked somewhere else before and so had some experience with very small deals and everything. But I think that just having it as a permanent structure of the company that does the deals and where they source their capital from which is a big part of this. And that's where we start to get into things with institutional stuff. And also where we get into like the um, um, junk bonds and all that, you know, and the importance that that has to it. But I think that that's the part that they changed that made different. So the whole fund thing and the employees that they had and how they did it, the, the life of it, how they had, re you know, investors repeatedly investing in them and all, all through that, that, that sort of institutionalization of it that we are so used to today. That's the part that's new. The recapitalizing it with basically all debt and everything to take over for someone, install a board to control that situation when there has to be a change, you know, and then a strong oversight for a few years, and then maybe you sell it or you turn it to something else or whatever. Um, I don't think was new. I think in small businesses that have been being done for at least 20 years before this. Mm -hmm. Was there anything unique, though, about like the operation? So you said you didn't think it was unique with you know, the board and strong oversight and then potentially selling it, but the actual operations aspect of it coming in and, and being so focused on expense control and all of that, uh, was there anything unique that they did in your eyes? No, I mean, my view of this is a little different, I think, than some. So here's the thing. I think what is different from a few years before and what others did is KKR would end up getting rid of the CEO in a lot of cases, but they wouldn't get rid of them initially. So these are friendly deals, basically. And so being able to extract value that public shareholders otherwise couldn't extract for themselves because management wasn't going to do these things with a public company while staying public is the key here. 
I don't think there's a lot that KKR ever did that couldn't be achieved by recapitalizing and incentivizing management of a public company. They just did it to capture it for themselves and their investors um, by doing a friendly deal, which allowed management to stay in place and make this transition from a um, professionally managed public company with a um, not very demanding balance sheet to a very leveraged, very incentivized, very owner-oriented private company. But you could do the same thing in a public setting. It's just that they're not willing to do it. So I think that they captured that value. And they have to pay a premium to do it. You know, you have to pay some percentage over the um, public company's uh, share price at the time. But you'd really make those changes. So they made the kind of changes that you'd want to make at any public company. But they did it by taking it private and doing it in this collegial way. So I think that's a huge part of it. What is it? I mean, I guess we talk about this a lot, but do you really think it was just the incentive structure then for them? Like yeah. it was just they had the incentives to go in and do it, whereas maybe as the public company, they just it was different. They didn't have the same incentives that uh, KKR had. Well, I think there's three things. One, there's the um, if you want to say stick or whatever you want to say it, um, there's the danger of defaulting and everything and this is what the payment schedule is and this is the disaster that will happen to put pressure on um which could you know take years off people's lives and stuff to operate under those conditions in the early moments of it but it can also make them really rich if they succeed so it's putting on a level of stress they wouldn't otherwise want on themselves yeah um and no one would willingly take on that way with the carrot of a big payoff that way right and then it's getting the same the owners and the operators in the same room together as a team in terms of the board and stuff, which we've talked about before. I think you, um, at some point we did like mentioning something that someone had a, a st sub stack that's a letter a day or whatever. Remember that? Um, that yep. talked about what boards should look like and stuff. And that was taken from, I believe it was um, Roberts in that case, I think. Yeah. George um, Roberts. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they talk about what the board should be like. So everyone's pulling together on the same side that way instead of an antagonistic relationship between professional management and um, financial owners. So, yeah, that's why the book is called The New Financial Capitalist, because what we're talking about here is the a theory of the book sort of thing, is that this is like the resurgence of there were original financial capitalists many years ago that did all this financial engineering and stuff, which are people we think of as like tycoons, business moguls, whatever, but really it was finance stuff that they did with companies. And this is replacing that, um, you know, somewhat, uh, I don't know, 50 to 70 some years later or something, you know? So back from like the turn of the century to like now, it's a different group of people, but they're doing much the same thing by bringing the owner mentality into it. Do you have some things from that letter? Um, it was actually a speech he gave or something, right? Yeah. And we, we've About done a podcast on it. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's so funny. Like a lot of these recent podcasts we've done, right. You, in the last one, we were, you were talking about like how important it is from Tom Murphy to put the right systems in place right mm -hmm. so it's like getting the right systems and getting the right incentives right i mean or just everything right and obviously people listening even saying it out loud it's like yeah like of course right <laughs> that's something as investors like you always study incentives all the time but i do think um you'd be shocked how uncommon it is right monger show me the incentives and i'll show you the outcome um but yeah i mean so you look at here, so from this, uh, directors should be paid in stock, not cash, and their investments 
and the company should be meaningful. The size of corporate boards should be limited. Boards should have the ability to pick up the phone at any time and call a chief financial officer to monitor how the company is doing and to get information. That's very unique, I think. I think there's sort yes. of this natural, like, you want to bring it back to the Ben Graham pod, right? About the gentleman and not, you know, let's say like piercing that, um, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The, the separation between the board and management. Um, you know, yeah. and I think it's different though when the board is ran by owners of the business as opposed to like a professional board with professional managers and no one really has skin in the game. It's just, it's completely different. Like, yeah, you should be able to uh, pick up the phone and call the CFO and and monitor and, and be in tune with how the business is doing. How are you going to provide good advice if you don't even understand what's going on? And I do think that's a problem, right? Most people, boards, I mean, A, it seems like on a lot of boards, the directors, they don't even, they're not only not familiar with the company, they're not even familiar or talking to other board members. Um, so then they show up for the board meeting and then, you know, they get their materials and it's just kind of the groupthink thing. They just vote all together or, you know, if the CEO makes a recommendation, they vote with the CEO and, and that's basically it. There's no action taking, it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. People just aren't even like, they're just not serious, honestly, about what it means. And I think a lot of that is because the incentives aren't right and they don't own any stock, you know? Yeah. I also think there's no buy-in. In this case, they agreed to do it. That's, that's critically important psychologically, right? So yeah, incentives like financial incentives and everything, important, but they're not the only thing. You know, um, after the book Influence that, uh, you know, uh, that author followed up with a book about like basically other type things, which included the kind of thing that I'm going to talk about here, which is the importance of prepping for the interaction that you're going to have and everything and the things that matter that way. And one of them is the idea that you pre-buy into things by agreeing to that. So we've talked about that with budgets and things. Budgeting needs to be done so that the uh, it's not dictated from headquarters down um, and headquarters isn't just accepting something, but it's done between the two HQ and the subsidiary that they think they've come together on the budget. If they don't think so, then it's not going to work as well. And here they buy into the buyout. Right. So the people who are on this board and who are the executives and stuff in these situations agreed to this, which is critically important. It's not just something that happened. Now, if the, you go onto a public company board or you become the CEO or the CFO or whatever of a public company, it's different. You don't know who put you there. Um, the people who put you there actually will end up leaving at some point and you're still going to be there. Um, there's nothing of that kind of um, commitment that you gave and the idea that you as a group all bought into this arrangement. Um, so I think it's very different. Um, you know, a lot of people feel okay cheating some faceless insurance company out of a, committing fraud against that or whatever very differently than they will um, taking money out of the pocket of someone that they can see their face and stuff, you know? And so this is that kind of thing where, okay, whatever sorts of things we're talking about in terms of what they have to do, they are doing it on a personal level, a social level, um, that they feel that they've all bought into it and that they're all on the same team and stuff. And there's big turnover in a lot of these cases of what happens um, with people getting removed and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon. But they did at the start feel that they were buying into it. Mm -hmm. My favorite uh, bullet from this talk, and he actually did say it's the most controversial said each year the board should have an should have an outsider come in to review and discuss what strategic alternatives are available to the corporation. Yeah. That 
is critical and no public company will do it. Yeah. He follows it's up. The board thing, should understand yeah. the value of the company if sold to a third party and how value could be increased if a division were sold and the capital reinvested. Yeah. And we've talked about with the activism stuff with your chairman or whatever, like I said, in modern times, it's just activism is putting a company in play, basically. So it's just that bullet point. It's that yeah. an activist, really what they, whatever they say they're trying to accomplish, what tends to be accomplished is just what KKR wanted there, which is, okay, let's get an appraisal of what everything's worth and see if the sum of the parts is worth more than the whole on a continuing basis. And you've read Value Investors Club and other things. They're all just excited that there's going to be a 30% pop in a stock because they're going to sell some things off or something. You know, that's always what it is. That's what everyone wants out of it, you know, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to each year thinking, okay, is it better if we keep this thing or get rid of it or whatever? Um, some of the outsiders thought that way. Now, Buffett just holds everything. And uh, that's understandable. Others reconfigure their empire by buying and selling things at different times, you know. Why is that understandable? I mean, I, I think, it, was it a recent Munger interview um, before he passed? And he was talking about creating this culture where people will want to sell to you, right? So mm -hmm. basically, you're, you're selling it. Berkshire's going to own it forever. They'll never close it down. It'll just, I don't know. I mean, why do you think, is that what the, the thought process was of like never yes. selling and why he doesn't well, do that? I would recommend the book Uncontainable about the container store. Okay. Because the container store sold to private equity and the container store, in a sense, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the founder will be happy that they got a lot of money and stuff, but they could have sold to Berkshire and how it's going to end is not going to be as good as what it would have been if it had been at Berkshire. You know what I mean? In terms of the outcome for the employees, in terms of the outcome for the reputation of the company, in terms of whatever, but you got a lot more money for it, you know? So it's a trade-off. I mean, in that book, uh, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but like literally you could go to that book and look up in the index or whatever and find, you know, references to Buffett and they could have sold to Buffett. They could have sold to Berkshire and they liked Berkshire better than they liked any um, uh, private equity stuff, but they didn't because Berkshire wasn't willing to offer anything near the same price. Um, and the company went public in, in, since then in a way that made them a lot of money and stuff. But then it's been, uh, do you have a stock chart? Cause you can see it's been all downhill since going public. Um, so the thing with Buffett or with this private equity thing, and I think this is also important with the private equity thing that people may not understand that, that KKR made a good point about is like, people would be worried, okay, they're going to, um, Oof. screw us, the, the debt holders, you know, and KKR's point in that is, well, we can't do that because we depend on these people to keep raising it because this is an iterative process for us where we have to keep going back to the same sorts of people to raise money. And so we can't, you know, um, do things that are really bad. Like, you know, there's a description here about going through bankruptcy with a couple companies. Why be involved with it once the equity was basically new that it was going to be wiped out and everything. But you carry it out so that you have a better chance of raising money later from the same people right from the same institutions and everything you have some sense that you have a reputation as a sponsor in a sense um that your deals work out and you build that reputation um and that's an important part of it and that's with berkshire that's the reputation is that they hold it forever and everything you get a reputation for whatever you do in those things kkr's reputation is not for wonderful outcomes for workers and great things and whatever that way it was middling to poor on that stuff you know what i mean um but for 
people looking to invest in junk bonds, people looking to lend to you, um, people looking to be involved in getting options and stuff as top executives and everything. The reputation was they make money and this deal takes X amount of time, but they have a really high hit rate, like a really high batting average of making you a bunch of money. And um, they do their best to make everyone rich, right? So that was the reputation. So that would get a lot of people involved with it. Whereas a brand new company starting out 10, 20 years later, whatever, with none of that reputation or that just acted randomly in one deal to the next, wouldn't develop that same kind of um, ability to do deals. You know, there'd just be more doubt about it. Or if they constantly were going hostile and stuff, you know, um, that that would have harmed. I don't think the business model would have worked going hostile. Um, they did a little bit sometimes, but I think that w wasn't good. They shouldn't have done that probably. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, yeah. Obviously, that's about RJR Nabisco. Is there mm -hmm. anything that stands out to you about KKR and the experience there? Yeah, there's a few things that stand out. Um, so let's see where we have that in here so we can talk about. Is there a movie on Barbarians at the Gate? Yep, it was done as a movie. Yeah. Um, 1993. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Um, well, I think one thing that we could talk about there is the price, which was too high. Um, lower price fixes a lot of things there. And um, let's see. Okay. The Perils of Tobacco, page 146. So this should be some of it where they talk about it. Okay. Like everyone else, KKR was paying higher multiples for assets. All right, that's page 147. Um, it was its only hostile acquisition. Let's see. Mm -hmm. um, what? Okay. So they did $1.5 billion in equity and $30 billion of debt. Okay. So... But they had done deals in the very early days at low prices where that wasn't the case. Here, here's a bigger thing about like people talk to me sometimes about private equity and will it work out as well in the future as in the past and everything. And no, because you could do it with all debt before because you could say you could borrow six times EBITDA on debt and you could buy things for six times EBITDA, right? Yeah. If you're paying 12 times EBITDA, you still can only borrow six times EBITDA. I mean – they might let you borrow more than six times EBITDA, but it's no safer than it was then to borrow six. You know what I mean? So what happens is it's not just that there's a mix. It's not just a question of the mix of debt and equity. It means they're overpaying. It's not like they've decided we should become more conservative over time. I know people say that, but that's not the impression I get. The impression I get is that you've paid more and more money and the premium has to be filled with equity. It can't be filled with debt. Um, you read the Caesar Palace coup, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a deal that went poorly and stuff. And that was basically, I mean, there's all sorts of arguments about why that was. But at the time, people would tell you the reason why it's because when the deal was announced, people said that's a crazy price to pay, mm -hmm. you know, because you're paying a high price on the peak of everything, you know, in terms of what the best numbers were and everything. So, I mean, look, especially if you do debt, a high price is extra problematic. Um, high price is bad no matter what. You know, that's got to be avoided. But I guess you don't you don't have as much room to survive. Um, and then, of course, they argue about things like the uh, the price cuts and stuff with the competitors. Right. So 
Um, let's see. So here we have Nabisco and Philip Morris stock prices. Yeah. And then they go on explaining all of that. Um, I also don't know if it's a... I don't think it's a great target also. Got to be honest. Like some of the things that they bought before I think were better targets and we could get into this. I mean, I like the book a lot. Look. But I'm not sure if I agree always with the author on some things, authors on some things, I guess. And um, one of them is their defense of the um, RJR deal and stuff about why it went. They, they all, the argument is always a series of unfortunate events, right? Like this happened and this happened and this happened. And, you know, but some of the earlier deals were a bit easier in terms of what they're paying versus, I mean, what they're paying versus just what you could break it out by selling things off for. Um, I don't know. I mean, Berkshire 3G had this similar thing um, when we're talking about. So if you remember the Heinz Craft stuff, um, it's also you're talking about paying a very high price. And you're also talking about a branded business that I don't know if it's the easiest thing to get more out of. I mean, I'm sure there was lots of fat to cut with corporate and everything like they talked about there, but I don't know. I'm not sure that I think great performing businesses in terms of the business position and stuff are really the best things to target for LBOs, but mm -hmm. what about Safeway and KKR? Safeway was a great one. Yeah. Uh huh. What went I right mean, like there? A target, great, great target, right? Uh -huh. Well, so Safeway is a great target for a few reasons. I mean, anything that combines, so anything that combines assets and earnings and people aren't valuing the two together properly is really good. Um, and then also Safeway just had no, um, not doing anything in terms of um, understanding the returns on capital by having realistic valuation of the property that they have. Um, so we've talked about this, like what was the ones we talked about? Do we talk about Engels Market? Do you remember which one I talked about or about all the things that they own and everything? Or we've talked about Marcus. They own a lot of things. Marcus. A lot of companies don't get credit for the fact that they, so they produce EBITDA and stuff. And then when their earnings go up, people go, oh, that's great. But, you know, like they had a lot of assets, land, um, buildings, whatever things in places um, compared to others who rent that stuff. And that isn't necessarily understood that well. And then, you know, the market seems to either pick one or the other. We want to value it on assets. We want to value it on earnings. And when you have a mix of those two things, I think um, that's a really good target for LBOs and stuff. But obviously, these things have been picked over over time um, so that these kinds of things the market recognizes and stuff. And now you don't see as many opportunities that way. Um, I mean, we've talked about Paramount, right? My parent has a lot of debt. But something that you break up the different pieces, some people might be surprised at what pieces earn you a lot of money and what doesn't. Um, you know, actually Disney's the same way, but it's just performing better and stuff. So it, it looks more impressive, but people might be surprised at how good some things are and how bad other things are and that they don't realize it's all being mixed together and that's what they're seeing. Um, so, yeah. Um, but Safeway, to be fair... Although I'm saying it was a great deal in terms of the target and stuff on all the financial things, it was a mistake for the company, KKR, because that's the deal that really – also Barbarians at the Gate that we talked about. But Safeway is probably the one more than anything that hurt the reputation of all private equity firms and stuff to to this day that they are seen as, um, you know, barbarians. <laughs> bad for workers oh, no i think yeah. they were seen as bad for management before but they're bad for unionized workers hourly workers and all of that is um 
more related to the Safeway stuff. So Safeway workers were paid higher than other people in the same areas, which is hard to take over a thing like that. That's, I mean, what's the strategy? You know, that's always the thing when we talk about any of these. Um, sometimes I, maybe you don't think through all of what you're doing about how you're actually going to achieve the same things as somewhere else. You know, we'll get to it eventually in the Dear Chairman book series, but we're going to get to one where activists basically drive away all the portfolio managers at a company, which drives away all the clients and what's left. Well, there's no company there. There was nothing ever there except clients and portfolio managers and stuff. So what did you do? You drove away the talent and there's nothing, you know? Um, so if it's a talent-based company and stuff, you can't do that. Um, it'd be like if all the partners at some accounting firm or law firm, or whatever, could walk away and then they can start up their own somewhere else, you know? Okay. So you wouldn't do that. The equity is not the thing that matters, but the assets and stuff are the things that matters or the, you know, different IP that you have somewhere or whatever. Um, so I think the problem with the Safeway thing is what was ever going to be the plan there? If we're going to get wages down to the same level as other people, uh, as our competitors in the same place, it's a great strategy if you hadn't already gotten them to being overpaid, but when you buy the asset, you've got a problem. So I don't know. They probably wouldn't. I, I can't imagine that they actually are happy that they did that. Mm-hmm. Even has, though private, has private equity changed since this book came out in 1998 other than multiples becoming way more expensive? Yeah. I think there's a lot more, there's a lot less buying of a, segment of a business that someone so i mean the best thing ever was you buy these orphaned businesses right some big company instead of spinoffs and we've talked about how bad spinoffs have gotten as compared to what they used to be but basically before spinoffs got big with the joel greenblatt stuff it the spinoffs were what the um companies were buying what the um uh, private equity firms were buying right so like you know there's one about duracell and stuff in here i mean that's what you want i'd love to have a company say i'll you know i'll spin off this underperforming thing to you and you can leverage it all up with everything and do what you want to do with it because they failed to run it the way that it should be run right um that is the example with paramount or whatever like there are pieces in it that if it was split off and given to someone else and they were incentivized and everything would probably do well but could have all sorts of problems with the corporate parent um so some sort of valuable asset that you can then take apart and do a better job with. Um, so, yeah. And then they also just trade it with each other all the time now. So it's become less liquid and they exit to each other and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very institutionalized compared to what it was back then that way. So I don't think the economics of the underlying deals are as good, but the economics of the stock market aren't as good as they were 40 years ago either. So I wouldn't mind seeing the prices that they saw in 82 for public company stocks either. So I can't complain that. Their deals don't make as much sense now. Our buying stock doesn't make as much sense as it would have in 80-something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of Paramount, I had sent this to you. I'm sure you had saw it. Uh, Sky Dance backers, uh, Larry Ellison's son, um, trying to... Uh, buy National Amusements, deal. probably. Yeah. I would assume uh-huh. National Amusements, not Paramount. The Yeah. Uh-huh. I was just yep. thinking of her, yeah. Mm-hmm. Putting it in an auction together, it sounds like. Sherry Redstone. Sherry yeah. Redstone launches auction of Paramount Global's holding company. Yes. Other places I picked up on this was originally reported in the New York Post. Yeah. So that one you have is the original article and the others are just saying the same thing, I think. Um, yeah. So, but that's the controlling shares that they own because there's two classes of stocks. So I think what most people are interested in buying is the control of Paramount and not that the shareholders will get it. Um, so... 
we'll see what happens there, but you could have a different ownership in there. And the argument against the stock for a long time has been that you have bad ownership. You know, the controlling shareholders bad has been the argument. Um, her father as well as her, you know, it's been bad for a long time. Um, so, um, but that's the argument in lots of things. I mean, there's the argument against like sphere and all of that. Cause you have the family you have involved there and everything. So, um, why do you think more boards aren't ran, uh, like the way that George Roberts say they should be ran? Well, I mean, they might run them that way if you gave them the same percentage of the company and stuff that the people on the boards of KKR companies had. And even the people who didn't have that much skin in the game in that particular deal would have thought that they'd be involved in another board of KKRs or another deal or something too. So, yeah. I mean, if Warren Buffett said, I'm creating a board and I want to give you some stock in it and stuff, I think he could recruit some pretty good people to work pretty hard on it, you know? Um, but, you know, the ownership at lots of boards is low. They don't own a lot of stock in it. They're not incentivized that way. And they may not have a lot of impressive people on it together um, committed to doing something. Also, I think... Committed to creating value for shareholders. Yeah. Yes. I also think the short-term nature is critical in LBOs and stuff. I do not think that people will sign up for a lifetime of working the way that they do. Um you know, I know people who made a lot of money at, um, you know, your Goldman Sachs's and your things like that. And uh, they left by about the age that I am now. And it wasn't because they weren't being offered enough money and stuff. It was because uh, they'd had enough of that. So they're happy to work that way in their 20s and 30s, but that was it. They were never planning to work in their 40s and 50s and doing anything. If you've gone to a very high level, you know, there's a few people who make it to very high levels in organizations like that and stuff then maybe that you would. But if you get to fairly middle of the road with your class of people who came in at the same time you did and stuff, then you probably leave and say, let me do something else that's a slower pace and stuff. Um, you know, Buffett didn't want to keep doing his hedge, his hedge fund by that point. You know, I think that is part of it. I don't think you could get, you know, remember there was some of these companies, Safeway or whatever, people think that they're signing up with that company to work there for the rest of their life. It's like working at GM or U.S. Steel in the middle of last century or something. You know, it's a lifetime career commitment that you're going to do. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money, but you're going to have employment for life. I don't think someone wants to. Yeah, I don't think someone would want this pace for this intensity, this level of risk that you're aware of in the early years. I mean, the risk decreases a lot in the later years, but at the moment the deal's done, there's a high level of risk, very high. If something goes wrong initially. Um, you know, if capital markets freeze up and the cyclic, the business cyclically turns down at like the same second or something, you know, um, and there's also things you couldn't attempt, you know, like, um, if you remember there was Bill Ackman with uh, JC Penny, right? Where they wanted to do the big change. Okay. We can't do that with an LBO type thing. You can't have a pivot like that because if the pivot doesn't work, you're bankrupt instantly. Um, you know what I mean? You can't try different things like that. Um, you have to have a plan ahead of time and you have to stick to that plan on a way that makes sense in terms of how you're going to pay things off. I think asset sales and certain cost reductions and stuff are the best way to do that in, immediately um, and then improve things later on at a different pace. You can't really count on a ton of growth to drive things early on. Um, 
a lot of the really good deals involved things that were asset um, sales and different pieces of it to be more optimized that way. Portfolio optimization of sort of the assets to increase the efficiency, the returns on assets and stuff. Um, they're pretty good about not growing assets too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why is that? I mean, because they're so focused on cash flow and mm -hmm. just like and the return on equity and return on assets and everything. Yeah. I also think it's usually where the low hanging fruit is, is to limit asset growth and to increase efficiency rather than finding. I mean, if, if there was ways to grow assets and increase efficiency initially, why didn't the company do it? The company wants to grow. So there's rarely new unexplored space that's going to have great returns. All companies like to do that. I mean, not not everyone, but mostly they do like to grow. But not all companies like to be more efficient but stay the same size. So one of the first things you can do is, all right, let's freeze things. Let's see, do we really need all this ad budget? Do we really need all this CapEx? Do we really need all of whatever stuff? Um, and say, can we operate a little more efficiently with the same amount of assets that we had before? Um, I mean, there's some graphs and things in here, and I know there's been other studies about what happens in employment levels and everything. And the argument is that after the first few years, they do grow similar to other companies, that companies that have been the targets of LBOs and stuff, that yes, initially there's a contraction basically, but then after that, they look more like other public companies. You know, so like in years one and two, they don't, but then in three, four, five, they start to have employment levels moving like they would at other companies and everything. Um, I don't get into that kind of discussion. There's a whole debate about that with the social costs and everything, but that's not the way that I think of jobs and stuff. I mean, if you get rid of jobs and stuff, there are other jobs in the economy those people go to. It's not this creating jobs business isn't something I really believe is true. So, you know, if you make things more efficient with the business that you have, yes, you throw people out of work from your particular place, but they'll find work somewhere else. Um, so, you know, there's lots of reasons why people aren't employed, but I don't think that just like being more efficient at one particular company is going to do it. Unless as Berkshire had a situation where they had people who had skills that weren't transferable. So absolutely that's true. So they had their, their textile workers, they were middle-aged, a lot of them didn't speak English. I mean, yeah, you're, you're in a job where you couldn't, you have a job, but if you were out in the workforce, you wouldn't be able to find jobs elsewhere. So that's absolutely true. You know, and in the case of Safeway, if they fired people, they could go work for Albertsons or whatever it would have been at that time, you know, competitors around the place, but they would be working at 20% lower wages or whatever, because they were being paid above um, market wages. So that would be a big thing that would hurt them. And that's why that kind of deal is hard. Um, so I think a big part of it is figuring out early on with your plan, what you, what we will actually be required to do. And I think in the early years, they might've been more aggressive on that. And later they came to recognize that there's some that you shouldn't get involved with because it's just too unpleasant to work. It's like Buffett at Dempster Mill, right? Yeah, reputation-wise and everything, it's not worth it. It became politicized. So you just have to avoid certain things. So I don't think you're eager to, you know, I don't think anyone was looking to have an LBO of US Steel, even if it was the smartest thing in the world. You don't want that in election year, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compound podcast. I'm going to put the link to the book in the description below, as well as a link to A Letter a Day, uh, which is a talk by George Roberts. Uh, lots of good uh, nuggets in there. 
if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can go to focuscompound.com, click that invest with us tab, or you could just reach out to me directly at andrew at focuscompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.